Well, thank you. You guys can go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Um, We're going to be continuing. uh, This is our fourth Advent uh, series uh, sermon together in our series. So can't believe Advent's already over um, coming this week. Uh, But you can open up to Hebrews. My name is Alan, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here. So if you're new and I haven't met you, uh, I'd love to be able to meet you after the service. Uh, unfortunately, my wife isn't, isn't with us uh, this morning. She, she's at home, and usually what that means is I can talk about her. Um, so there's, there's an argument. I wouldn't say it's an argument. It's a, it's a fun debate disagreement that her and I have all the time. Uh, my wife loves Marvel movies, loves them, Marvel movies. I think they're okay. Like, I enjoy them, I will watch them with her, I'm just not as excited by Marvel movies as she is. She loves them, and the reason that I'm not as excited about them is because every Marvel movie is the exact same, right? They're, 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 they're all the same. They just, it's the same playbook over and over and over again. And so the other day, maybe a couple weeks ago, actually, I was at our community group, and I was complaining about this, how every Marvel movie is the same, and uh, Angus, my community group leader, and a few others had some words of correction for me in that. Um, But one of the things that they said is, but Alan, isn't every story really the same? And every Marvel movie just follows that grid. So I was thinking about it, and I was like, okay, I I think there's some truth to this. There, There was a guy named Kurt Vonnegut, I think I said his name right, I have no idea, but he was an author, and he had this same theory, that basically every story follows the same grid, and so he developed a way to actually chart out stories, that you could literally put a story on a grid, and then input that into a computer system, and then of course AI in the future will grab that and just create stories for us, which is not a good thing. Um, so anyway, but this is the grid, I'm going to show it to you on the screen, that he developed. All right, so you've got an X and Y axis. All right, your X axis, your horizontal axis, that's the timeline of the story, beginning and end. And then you've got your Y axis, all right, on the top, it's good. This is the main character. The main character is experiencing something good. And then at the very bottom is bad, all right? The main character is experiencing something bad. All right, so we'll put Cinderella up on the, the grid here for a second. All right, here's Cinderella. So this is the chart. All right, so Cinderella starts off bad, all right? She's lost her family. She's got a mean stepmom. She's got mean stepsisters. It's not good. She's suffering. She's not allowed to go to the ball. Everyone's mean to her, right? But then she meets Fairy Godmother, right? And things start to go up for her, right? She gets a new dress, some slippers, all this stuff. And then she learns she's going to go to the ball. So she's at the ball. It's great. She, she dances with the prince. Everything's going great. But then what happens? The clock strikes midnight. Okay, there you go. I think you all have seen the movie, right? So it starts midnight, and so it, it tanks, and now everything's bad, right? And so, but she leaves her slipper. The prince comes after her. I haven't seen the movie in forever, right? But at the end of the story, what is it? Everything is happily ever after, right? This is Cinderella, all right? Here's every single Marvel movie ever made, all right? It's up here. 
This is every Marvel movie ever made. Number one. All right, so, so it starts out good for the hero, all right, because he's the hero. Everybody loves them, and so they're there to protect everyone. But a, a villain shows up, but it's not too bad because the hero is like, hey, guess what? I'm the superhero. I got it. I'm going to take care of it. Don't worry. But then this villain's a little trickier than the last one. Right? And so it tanks. I don't know. Is the superhero going to be able to do it? Is he going to be able to save us all? Massive battle at the end that destroys an entire city, and then we win happily ever after. That's every Marvel movie, right, ever made is right there. But what we see, though, through this and what actually the research has shown through charting out stories is that this is pretty much every story ever told. This idea of redemption, this idea of something bad is happening and we need someone to to step in and help us and save us, or it seems like all is lost, but at the end of the story, actually everything ends up happily ever after. And so if you do the research and you actually look at the data, this is most stories, Across every culture, it's transcultural. It's not a Western thing. It's not an American thing. Across every culture, this is the story we tell. Through all time, through all of history, this is the story that we tell in all kinds of different forms. What does that tell us? What that tells me is that, that this is truly, like embedded deep into our gut, into our souls, this is what we long for. We long for redemption, not just as Christians, as humanity. We long for things to end up good as humanity. There's something in our gut that says not, things are not good right now. That, that things need to get better, that we need to be saved, that someone needs to step up and figure something out, right? That's deep inside our gut, across all cultures, across all of history. This is the story that humanity tells, that suffering is not normal. There's, there's something not normal about this, that actually what seems right, what makes sense, is that we would end up in a place where all is good and all is well. This is the stories that we tell. And so it's got to tell us something that humanity as, as a race of people, when it comes to telling a story, whether faith is attached to it or not, this is what seems to pop out. And from the opening pages of the Bible, what the Bible is going to do is affirm this thing that's in our gut, that actually what we're made for is happily ever after, but something has gone deeply wrong. Because the Bible starts with creation. And the way that the Bible describes the world, that creation, it is a place of harmony. And it is a place where there is no hurt, there is no sin, where relationships are whole. And as the Bible would describe it, we are dwelling with, we are with God himself, our creator. So there's no questions about origin or purpose or where did we come from or identity. None of that is going on. It's, 
a holistic, harmonious place. And just a few pages over, we get at least the Bible's description of what happened, what went wrong. That humanity rejected that creator. Humanity rejected that identity and that purpose. We said we want to live life on our own terms, apart from you. So we, we sin against God. And what the Bible says is then God banishes us from his presence. And that creation around us breaks. Sickness is now here. Relational brokenness is now here. Hatred and war and death all enter into creation. It's the Bible's description of what went wrong and why we all know something's wrong, that what we experience is not right. And actually, if you go to the Bible, if you go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, look at what it says. Genesis 3, verse 24, this is God driving man out from his presence. It says this, he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, which is this like warrior angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. What, what, what does this mean? Why does God say this? What, what this is saying is because we rejected God, because we did not want to exist in his kingdom, God banishes us and then he basically says, I will make it so that you will never be able to come back. I'm going to make it so that there's nothing that you could do to get past that warrior angel. There's nothing that you could do that will be able to let you get back into relationship with me. I'm guarding the way back to life. And Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that God has placed eternity on our hearts, every human being. And so there's something deep within our souls that knows we were made for something different. What we are experiencing today is not right, yet it seems impossible to figure out how to go from things not being right to things being right. And so we express that longing through the stories we tell. And every culture has done that through all of human history. As I said, this morning we're in our fourth Sunday of Advent. And we're studying in Advent this unique belief in Christianity that our God came for us in and through Jesus. And that Jesus, Hebrews 2.17, became like us in every way so that he could save us. And so what we've been studying is why did Jesus have to become like us in every way? What was the purpose of that? What does that mean? So what we've been learning a lot about in this study in Advent is the character of God. I mean, we learned Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus Christ himself is the exact imprint of the nature of God. And so if we want to know what God is like, we look to Jesus Because he's going to show us an exact imprint of the nature of God. And what we've seen is that Jesus is a compassionate, empathetic, merciful, gracious, patient God. 
And we see things like Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 4 that have taught us things like that Jesus was tempted in every way that we were tempted, yet he remained without sin. And why did Jesus do that? So he could help us in our time of need. Last week, we looked at Hebrews 7 and 8. Evan taught us about how Jesus came, and because he was a human, he was able to be a better priest, mediating for us to God. And so we get this idea that that the character of God is one of compassion and empathy coming towards us, wanting to help. And the question that I've had is, that seems incongruent with the God who places the cherubim to guard the way to the tree of life. The God that banishes out from the garden and says, you will never be able to make a way back in. I will see to it. That doesn't seem congruent with Exodus chapter 26. I want you to see this. Go to Exodus chapter 26. This is in the middle of the section when uh, God is giving his people instructions on how to build the tabernacle. Because the tabernacle was going to be a place of worship where God's people would go to worship God. But but look at this, Exodus 26, verse 31 to 33. God's giving them instructions on how to build this tabernacle. He says this, And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it and you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold with hooks of gold on four bases of silver and you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimonies the ark of the covenant had the ten commandments in it it symbolizes the presence of god bring that ark in there within the veil and the veil shall separate for you Turn my page, sorry. Separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. In in other words, this veil was a veil that separated the people of God from the presence of God. And skillfully embroidered into that curtain was cherubim, which is essentially a sign that says, You're not welcome in here, you've been banished. You will not be able to make a way back into my presence because I've placed the cherubim to guard the way. You will not be able to figure out a way on your own to get back into my presence. That God seems incongruent to me from the God we've been studying who's kind and compassionate and empathetic and comes towards us. So what's our conclusion with that? Our conclusion is this, and at least it's what I want us to study this morning is this, is that God always supplies to us what he requires from us. God always supplies for us what he requires from us. The fourth reason I want us to study this morning from Hebrews on why Jesus became like us in every way is so that he could make a way for us to be back into the presence of God. Jesus became like us in every way so that he could make a way through the curtain, so that he could make a way past the cherubim, so that he could redeem us from our sin and from our plight. And in order for Jesus to do that, he had to be like us in every way. Why? Well, let's read together 
Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 21, be our text for the morning. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to 21 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, he's talking about the other side of the curtain, the most holy place. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, look at the phrase, that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, stop right there, right? Obviously, those verses were introductory. He's about to encourage us with something. And so he's saying, because of these truths, and then we'll get to the encouragement in a second, but I just want us to pause and, and look at what those truths are that he's saying here in verses 19 to 21. What's the first thing that he tells us? He tells us that Jesus has opened a way for us to get back into the presence of God through the curtain, past the cherubim. Jesus has made a way. That's the first thing that we learn. The second thing that we learn is that this allows us to enter God's presence with confidence. We studied this a couple weeks back, but, but with confidence, meaning that we're not approaching God's presence, wondering if he's going to accept us or not. We're not approaching God's presence with anxiety. We're approaching God's presence with confidence because we have that much confidence in the way that Jesus provided. And the third thing that we learn in this is that the, Jesus made this way through his flesh. It says right there in the scripture that it is through his blood, through his flesh, that he was able to make that way. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like us, flesh and blood, because it was through his human body that he was able to make a way for us to be reconciled to God, to get past that cherubim, to go through the curtain and be in God's presence. How? How does that work? How did Jesus' body able to do that for us? Back up in Hebrews 10 to verses 11 to 14. Look what it says. Hebrews 10, 11 to 14, it says this. We'll walk through this slowly together. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice. Look at this, which can never take away sins. So in the Old Testament, right, they set up the tabernacle. They had a sacrificial system. They would make sacrifices in order to atone for their sins, but all of these sacrifices were not enough. They were inadequate to take away sins. They were inadequate to allow us to go past the curtain and be in God's presence. And so what we learn from the Bible, right, not just New Testament but Old Testament, right, is there's nothing we can do to get past the curtain. 
There's nothing we can do to get to God's presence again. He made, a, made it so that there would never be anything that we could do to do that. You could have every word of the Bible memorized back and forth. You could say it on a normal way and you could say it backwards. It's not enough for you to be able to be welcomed back into God's presence. You could never miss a church service. You could feed every single poor or homeless person that you see. You could be the most, you could have the strongest willpower of any person when it comes to your behavior and your patience with other people, and it would not be enough because what we believe is that there is nothing we can do to be back in God's presence. Nothing. And so what we see here in verse 11 is that these priests, every day, repeatedly, they offered the same sacrifice. They did the same thing over and over and over and over again for thousands of years, for over a thousand years. And what does it say in verse 11? Can never take away sins. Verse 12 to 14. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And what the writer of Hebrews is teaching us is that Jesus' single sacrifice, the shedding of his blood upon the cross for all time, paid for the sins of God's people. That what happened here, it's what theologians call substitutionary atonement. Big word. But it's this, what happens here is that when Jesus offers himself for us, what he's literally doing is he's saying, the blood, my righteous blood offered on the cross, I am giving it so that it will pay for the sins of all of God's people. Anyone who would place their trust in Christ The blood of Jesus is enough to cover their sins, to forgive their sins for all time. But here's what's crazy. It's not just that Jesus takes away his sins because of his blood on the cross. It's also that you receive his righteousness. Did you read verse 14 there again? Let's just read this slowly. Hebrews 10, verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected, all right, perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You could just read that as he perfected for all time those who are being perfected. You could read it that way too if you wanted. And so what do we learn from this? Is that in the cross of Jesus Christ, when Jesus offers himself, he perfects us. Now, are we perfect? No. But in God's eyes, we stand perfected as we are in the process of being perfected. It kind of messes with your mind, but what it's saying is this, because Jesus has done that, because he's taken away your sin, and because you stand in God's presence as perfected, then you can with confidence stroll right on past that curtain into God's presence. You are now welcome back into his kingdom. 
It's why when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain tore in two. It was God's way of saying that there now is a way back into his presence. And so with confidence, we can be drawn near to God. So apply this to our story grid. All right, let's put, put our story grid back up there uh, for a second. Let's see what we got here. All right, so just keep it there. So this is humanity. If we think about the gospel story from our perspective, so this is for those who trust in Christ as their redeemer, right? Obviously, the story starts off bad. We're in a broken, fallen world. We are alienated from our creator. We are under his judgment. But something happens that takes us into happily ever after, right? Something happens that brings us into God's kingdom. But now let's look at the gospel story from Christ's perspective. All right, so here's Jesus' perspective. Well, it starts off good for him. He's in heaven with God the Father. But Philippians 2 teaches us that in obedience to the Father, he steps out of heaven and he comes into our broken world. He puts on human flesh. He's tempted in every way that we are tempted. But in that, he offers himself on the cross. He goes into the grave. He pays our sins and he comes back from the grave. He's raised three days later and he goes back into God's kingdom. Now overlay both perspectives on top of each other. What we get is this, that we serve a God who came to us. He rescued us. He put on human flesh. He experienced everything that we experienced. He offered himself on the cross. And since he did that, he made a way for us to go back into God's presence. And he brings us into God's kingdom. This is the story of the gospel. This is the story of the Bible. It's a story of redemption. God is supplying to us what he requires from us. He has supplied us a redeemer. And that's Jesus. This is what we believe as Christians. And so, this must be said. The Bible is clear that Jesus is the only way to eternal life. That, that Jesus is the one who made a way for us to go back to our creator and to be in God's kingdom. Now, there are some who will say that Jesus is a way and that, in fact, all religions, all belief systems, all philosophies, everyone who has goodwill, kind of all of that leads to the same God or leads to the same happy ending or leads to the same eternal state of whatever that is. And I get why some people say that. You know, they don't they don't want to they don't want to seem prideful. Uh, you know, as if they go, well, I, I'm the one that has the answer and all of these other people who have different belief systems, uh, they don't have the answer and I'm the enlightened one and they're not the enlightened ones. I, I get the temptation to want to wanna 
say that, or they just don't want to offend, or they don't want to exclude. Obviously, that is how our culture operates now, and there's some good to that, and there's some bad to that, but I get why people say that, but you have to understand that Christianity is unique. The Bible is unique amongst all belief systems in saying that what you need is redemption. What you need is a redeemer. That that you can't do it on your own. If we go back to our story grid for just a second, Nick, put up the human one for me. Every other belief system in the world says this is the way. We recognize that things aren't great. But we're going to give you the tools, we're going to give you the pathway, we're going to give you the pillars, we're going to give you the laws, we're going to give you the morals, we're going to give you the politics, we're going to give you whatever it is for you to figure out your way towards whatever is good at the end. This is every other belief system. And Christianity is unique in saying, no, actually what you need is a savior. That you're not strong enough. That you're not able to muster up the willpower. That there won't be enough morals. There won't be enough intellectual enlightenment. There won't be a way for us to reach utopia. No leader, no president is going to lead us in that direction. What you need is a savior. What you need is a redeemer. And so what we have to understand is this, is that if we're going to say that all paths lead to eternal life, all paths lead to this kingdom, all paths lead to the same thing, if you're going to make that claim, then you at least have to have the intellectual integrity to say that in saying that, you are rejecting the idea that you need a redeemer, that you're rejecting the idea that what you need is redemption. Because to say all paths lead to the same thing is to say that humanity can do it on their own. Just choose a system, choose a belief system, and follow that path. But uh, but Christianity is a unique outlier, and I say, wait, wait, that's not the way it works. We need someone to help us. We need a redeemer. Because the Bible says a moral code's not going to do it. We need redemption. And you know what redemption produces in us? Let's keep going in our passage. If you go to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 22 to 23. Remember the introductory part? Therefore, since we can enter the holy places with confidence through the blood of Jesus, that is through the curtain, which is his flesh, because he's a great high priest over the house of God, because of all of those things, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. You know what redemption provides? Security, assurance, a clean conscience freedom for your soul. And no other system is going to offer that to you because every other system is going to say, you got to figure it out. You got to try harder. You got to discipline harder. But what redemption provides us is a true heart and a clear conscience and confidence to enter in the holy places 
of God. The law doesn't provide this. Morality doesn't provide this. Knowledge doesn't provide this. Only redemption. And do you have this today? Do you have a, a, a clear conscience because of the blood of Jesus? Do you have a, a true heart and the kind of assurance that goes, I know that my God receives me as being righteous because of what Christ has done. Because if you don't have that today, here's what you do have. You have the knowledge now that what the Bible teaches is that what you need is a redeemer, not a law. What you need is a redeemer, not steps to success. And so my question for you is, will you trust in that redeemer today? Because here comes the hardest part. The hardest part is admitting that you need a savior. The hardest part is admitting, yes, there is something wrong. And no, I can't do anything about it. I need a savior. Because the Bible teaches us that if we come to that place where we admit, yes, I, I need a savior, that's when we can go to God and say, God, I, I trust you for what you've done for me in and through Jesus to save me for my sin. And that's all that is required for you to have your sins forgiven and be welcomed back into the presence of God. And so this morning, as a church family, we come to this table. And this table symbolizes everything we just talked about. We have this tradition in the church that Jesus started for us. And that is to, to take bread and to break it. And we remember the fact that Jesus' flesh, his body was broken so that we could be redeemed. And we drink wine, in our case juice, but wine. And as we drink the wine, we're reminded of the blood of Jesus that cleansed us from all of our sin and gave us his righteousness. We're, we're literally remembering that Christ made a way through his flesh. But we also serve it on a table. And I love, it's traditionally called the Last Supper. Because the table, in my view, symbolizes the table that we will all sit at in God's kingdom at the end, when all is made right and all is made new. Where we will be together at God's table, Welcome in his presence, everything made right, relationships whole, sins forgiven, bodies healed, all of our sorrows and tears wiped away as we gather at this table feasting in God's kingdom. And so this morning, if you trust in Jesus as your redeemer, you're welcome to this table because you're welcome past the curtain. You're welcome in God's kingdom. You're welcome in God's presence. And you're invited to come up and to take the bread and to take the juice and take some time in your seat to pray and do whatever you want to do, but to remember what Christ has done for you so that you could be made welcome in God's presence. And this morning, if you don't trust in Jesus as your redeemer, it's hard for me to say, but you're not, you're not welcome at the table yet. But you can be. So you're not welcome because we need a redeemer to come to this table. 
We don't clean ourselves up to come to this table. You know, we, 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 it's not like you're welcome at this table as long as you had a great week of no sinning. It's not the way it works. No, we need a redeemer to bring us to the table. And you need a redeemer. And if you haven't trusted in Christ as your redeemer, I just want to ask you this morning, what would it take for you to trust in him this morning? We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to walk you down that journey because then you'll be welcome to the table because you need a redeemer. We all need a redeemer to come to this table. So I'm going to stop talking. I just want to give us some time to reflect and to pray and to think. And this morning, if you trust in Christ, I just encourage you to remember the cross. I encourage you to remember that you have full assurance. You have a clear conscience. You are able to confidently walk past that curtain into God's presence. And I invite you to the table to take the elements and to worship God in that. And if you don't trust Christ this morning, my encouragement to you is to just spend some time praying and ask God, God, if this is true, if this is real, if what I need is a redeemer, would you reveal that to me this morning? And if you want to talk more, you can come find me, any of our pastors, or we have prayer ministers that will be here after the service. We'd love to talk with you. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you that you have come for us. And as a community and a church family this morning, we confess that there's no other way to eternal life. There's no other way to be welcomed back into God's presence unless you come for us. We confess it's not about us living the perfect life. It's not about figuring out the secret to life. No, it's about you coming for us. And so Jesus, as we come to the table now to eat the bread and drink the wine, Lord, we, we pray that you would give us a full assurance of faith, true heart, confidence that we are welcomed in your kingdom and at your table. And if there's anyone in here, God, who is still wrestling with what they believe, Lord, I pray you would make it clear to them two things, that they can't do it on their own. They need someone to come for them and that that person was Jesus. You can come up whenever you're ready.